I'm Simon. And I'm Dan. And this is the Wikicast, a podcast where Wikipedia takes us to a random article and we talk about what we find. Daniel, what are we talking about this week? This week, Simon, we're talking about first contact, oh. open parentheses, anthropology, close parentheses. Oh, oh this is such a cool subject. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, I said the words first contact just this morning to a friend of mine because we we I, I started going to the gym with an old friend of mine and um, we were talking about Star Trek films and one of them is called First Contact. That's just quite strange mm. that, it, that that's come up. I half hope that you'd randomise the article for that movie, I'm not going to lie. Yes. Um, but just First Contact as a, as, a, as a concept is so cool. But mm-hmm. And this is anthropology specific, so it's not... It's not sort of sci-fi. This is no. Earth cultures meeting each other. Yes. So we've got a we've got a nice tidy little opening sentence that gives us all the information we need, which reads: Anthropology first contact is the first meeting of two communities previously without contact, and with what um with one another. Notable examples of first contact are those between the Spanish Empire and the Arawak in 1492, and the Aboriginal Australians with Europeans in 1788, when the first fleet arrived in Sydney. Because that's the thing. I feel like when we think of first contacts taking place, a lot of the time they are not really first contacts because there's been passing cultural connections. You know, like Mm -hmm. there wouldn't have been a first contact between the Roman Empire and the Chinese dynasties because they actually traded with each other indirectly and they were aware of each other's existence. Mm -hmm. Whereas like true first contact, like the Spanish and the Arawak, is actually quite rare, I imagine. I don't know if the article gives like examples or you know further examples yeah well it's interesting isn't it because it basically what we're what we're asking is at, at what point or what parameters need to be met for it to be deemed first contact mm. you know how how close and in what in what sort of sense so it goes on to say such contact is sometimes dis- described as a discovery such as the british and the united states did by creating the legal theory of the doctrine of discovery right which is interesting. I haven't heard about that. Yeah. Um, it is generally the more technologically complex society that is able to travel to new geographic regions to make contact with those more isolated, less technologically developed societies. However, some object to the application of such a word to human beings, which is mm. why first contact is generally preferred. The use of the term discovery tends to occur more in reference to geography than cultures. For an example of a common discovery debate, see the discoverer, discoverer of the Americas. Yeah, because like the humans on the discovery side in quotation marks mm-hmm. they knew where they were <laughs> like it implies a sort of a power dynamic doesn't it of of you know the, yeah. these humans were only discovered when technologically advanced humans found them so yeah yes I, i'd agree with that so we've got some uh, we've got some options we've, we've had a look at our, our sort of opener then we've got subsections consequences history notable examples see also and references um i'm gonna have a look at I imagine consequences are mostly negative. Well, I'm sure there are some friendly first contacts that actually didn't go that bad. But considering that a lot of first contacts, I imagine, were made by Europeans in sort of the age of sail, I'm imagining that the consequences of those were were pretty pretty rough. Mm -hmm. The historical record indicates that when one culture is significantly more technologically advanced than the other... This side will be favoured by the disrupted nature of conflict, often with dire consequences to the other society. But the introduction um, of disease plays a critical role in the process. More isolated peoples who live lived across border territories in low density um, 
succumbed to the illness brought from the comparatively high density of Europe. The indigenous, God, I can't read this morning. The indigenous indigenous populations (laughs) seem uh, simply had had not had the time to develop immunity to the foreign diseases, all of which introduced uh, at once, to which the more urbanised European populations um, had had many years to develop... This isn't written very well. Um, To develop some population immunity. So, yeah, uh, all of the the sort of positives and negatives that you can sort of Mm. perceive by, or actually maybe sort of semi-aware of with the, the, you know, the sort of the horrors of um, colonisation through empire. Because I have, um, on my to-read list, I have Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Harris, which I, I believe is largely about these kinds of conflicts and why, you, you know, historically Europeans kind of triumphed in the Americas, for example, in that they committed genocide and just wiped out millions and millions of people. But it's one of those... Mm. Hist- I don't know if you've read it or, or seen the documentary about it. It's one of these things that is obviously quite famous but is quite flawed apparently. So I'm, I'd be interested to read it with a more critical eye. Like I feel like I read a lot of nonfiction quite uncritically, um, mm. which is something that I'd like to work on. So, you know, quite, kind of, again, funny that we, we randomised on this one. It's actually very relevant. Absolutely. So are there, are there more examples that they uh, they give? They said there was a section for notable examples. We've got a, we've got a smattering of them, yeah. So uh, we have uh, circa year 1000, date unknown, the um, the indigenous Beothuk, uh, who were a group of indigenous people who lived on the island of Newfoundland, um, oh, meeting were discovered the by Leif Erikson. Yeah. Uh, then we we fast forward to 1492. The Americas. Um, indeed, yeah, with Christopher Columbus. Uh, 1595, uh, Polynesians were discovered, or, you know, uh, Alvaro de Mendania de Neira for the Spanish Empire right. initially friendly but turning violent in the first encounter and leading to 200 local deaths in the first two weeks oh okay yeah I just feel like because like, you know there's a such an you know it's a common trope in science fiction right that mm. you know first contact happens with aliens and then they turn violent is that just because as especially as Europeans that's just what we've done like I felt like if we were to meet another alien race now I'd like to think if we, if we if we were to, for example, go to the far side of the moon and somehow there was a subterranean species that we were just unaware of, I'd like mm-hmm. to think that we wouldn't be violent towards them. Like, is is this something that we've kind of quote unquote grown out of? I think it must be. I think I mean, obviously it will be it will be sort of circumstance dependent, I think. I mean, if there is no aggression shown to us, then I think it would then you know there would be no need but i think also in in this day and age we are more aware of of the negatives for, for you know for being you know for seen as being strong but then also yeah it, i imagine it's also a philosophical difference though right like we are not we are, we do not have the illusion that we are innately superior well okay i say we i mean that obviously some people still believe this but you know we don't have this assumption that we are innately superior to other beings mm you know, in the way that I imagine Europeans there probably did. They saw these exactly, indigenous yeah, people as exactly. animals. Exactly. But I guess then we would be trying to apply a sort of an earth human to human predisposition. Anth- anthropocentric? An- anthropocentric? I guess, to, to something extraterrestrial. I wonder, is there an article for... 
first contact in science fiction, I wonder. There is. I've got a link to it here at the bottom of the page. Oh, hang on. Let me... Oh, I've got it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got it. Oh, this is actually shorter than I thought it would be. It's just a lot of examples, basically. Hmm. Oh, wow. The two examples in the 2010s that are given, one of which is not in the 2010s, is Arrival and Axiom's End by Lindsay Ellis, which is a book I have mm. read and I enjoyed. And Arrival is one of my favourite films I've watched in the past couple of years. Arrival is extraordinary. Kicking things off with H.G. Wells going into Arthur C. Clarke. So is The War of the Worlds, then, the first example of a first contact? The first first contact? Oh, I see. So this is... The novel has been variously interpreted as a commentary on evolutionary theory, British imperialism, and generally Victorian superstitions, fears, and prejudices. So mm-hmm. invasion literature uh, was a thing at the time. Um, That's interesting. And it's just he twisted it up by saying that we were the ones being invaded as humans. Mm. Um, wow. That's cool. And obviously there's the famous story with War of the Worlds about um, the Orson Welles radio broadcast when they did an adaptation of it on American radio. Um, and oh, and didn't they think it was legitimate? People thought it was real and it caused a panic because they it was, mm. it was you know, so apparently convincing, which I suppose is, is credit to the story and, of course, to, the, to Orson Welles. Um, yeah. Because, you know, if, if you were to... If it's your only source of information about the broader world and you just tune into the radio and you hear this, you know, I can understand why people would be taken in by it and why there would be a mm. panic. Absolutely. Anyway, we actually talked about the article, for, which is a credit, again, to the, the quality of the article, Dan, because we haven't recorded for a little while. We have a lot to, to catch up on, actually. Um, An awful lot. Because, well, we would have recorded, I think, two weeks ago, and then we had to cancel, and I can't remember why. And then last week, we had to cancel because you, unfortunately, got got the big Rona. Mm, I was I was struck down with plague. So that's both of us now in rapid succession. Mm. Um, and you are, we, we spoke before recording, but you're largely out of it now. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm testing, uh, I test, I was testing negative on lateral flow tests on days six and seven, which meant that I could leave isolation early rather than having to stay cooped up for the full 10 days. Right. Um, which was much appreciated. Um, aside from... I think maybe sort of a day and a half where I was really bad. Yeah. I, I sort of my I think it was the Monday or the Tuesday night or something. Um and I was just it was horrific, you know, really really bad fever, banging headache, just feeling completely rotten and and so basically not just feeling like oh it was a bad cold. Yeah, it, it sort of tipped over into being something a bit more. Yeah, exactly. But then the rest of it was just yeah, like like a bad cold, you know, bit of a sniff, sneezing quite a lot. Um, this dry cough, which has basically disappeared now, um, and yeah, I feel, I feel fine. I mean, so I'm, I'm just I... so glad. I was talking to some friends, and I was saying I was so so glad that, you know, by the time that I had succumbed to coronavirus, I've I've had two boost, I've had two vaccines and a booster. Mm. I dread to think what it would have been like for me to have got it, having not had, you know, a booster or even perhaps my full full set of vaccinations. Yeah, because I mean, I, I'm just glad that you d- you didn't have it terribly badly because I the two well how many times now I've had it it's been pretty rough, um, mm. definitely getting weaker. Like the the most recent time was definitely nowhere near as bad as the first time round. Sure. Um, but it can it can be. I mean, obviously it can be deadly. Um, but for young people mm. who are in reasonable health like us, it's it's not such a concern. But it's still it's not not pleasant. No. Um, 
And, and I suppose the other thing which has happened in, in your end since we um, lasted an episode was you fully got stuck into the law thing. Yeah, you're, you're you're actually really into this course now. I'm 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 properly in my sort of last last sort of year, if we like, of 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 the academic side of things. So mm. my final GDL papers were sat in early to sort of mid January, which was EU law and criminal law. Mm-hmm. And then I had a I had a research um essay due early Jan as well, which is also one of the few things that counts towards your sort of final mark aside from your core module um assessments, the exams. So they're all done and I've now started my legal practice course, which is being phased out. In fact I think I'm one of the last year years who's actually able to do the LPC which has been the sort of standard for solicitors sort of training if you like there's the LPC for solicitors and there's the bar course for barristers Hmm. Um, it's now going to the LPC is going to morph into something called the SQE the solicitors qualifying examinations which is a two-year course which will which is meant to also encompass from my limited understanding of it um, bits of the training contract which is something that you do after your LPC so you do your academic year of, of LPC, although it's not really academic, it's 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 practical law. You're working as a sort of legal practitioner as opposed to an academic. Um, and then you apply to a firm. And if you're able to secure a training contract immediately, then that's fantastic. If not, you might be doing some work as a paralegal and then starting a, a training contract where you work through your various seats, um, which is just sort of legal speak for studying a or or rather working in a particular field so you get a good spread across i think you've got to do four seats and each seat is six months at least um and then when you've completed all of that um your your sort of your details are sent off to the um i guess the solicitors regulation authority um and when yeah when that's done then you can you're fully qualified and you can you know refer to yourself as and just, and seek jobs for solicitors so so you that is the point at which you could call yourself a lawyer up until that point you are still a, a legal student i think you can still i think po, i mean post gdl i suppose i could call myself a lawyer because if you're working if you're working as a paralegal you'll be doing aspects of work that would encompass a lawyer's work but to call yourself a solicitor you need to have completed your training contract and been accepted by you know the various sort of groups and and all the admin around, around that. So you can slap that on the dating profile. It's it's like as soon as someone's qualified as a doctor, bam. Basically, yeah, yeah. So I have started my LPC and then I'm doing a masters at the same time, which is hilarious because it's a rather. So there are there are different options if you want it. The reason I'm doing a masters um, is if I do a masters alongside my LPC, I can apply for postgraduate funding because the LPC isn't a masters degree. Um, right. Whereas if I do the MSc, which is what I'm doing, um, then I can apply for funding and fund most of the most of of both really. Um, so instead of doing a an LLM Masters in Law, I'm doing a MSc Masters of Science in Law, Business and Finance. So to think, you know, if you, if you rewound, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, when I was starting as an undergraduate. And said, you know, at some point you'll hold a you'll you'll hold a Masters of Science degree. I'd I'd have laughed. But thanks to the weird sort of, you know, um, sorting and categorising of, of academic degrees, I will be Daniel Moore, BA ONS, GDL, LPC, MSC. 
That's a lot of letters. Which is fun, <laughs> more than anything. What am I? I was looking at my. Oh, speaking of which, sorry, this is the, this is uh, this um this is completely sort of irrelevant. But um because of these things and because I sing in cathedrals and sort of various sacred Anglican contexts, mm. um, an academic hood is quite useful. Yes, yes, of course. Um, and I bought I I bought mine from Exeter because I can wear it in a service, and it turns out that I'm entitled to a new one for my GDL and a new one for my LPC and Masters. I also then, because they're, because the GDL is a postgraduate qualification, um, can get my new gown, my master's gown, as opposed to my undergraduate one. Mm-hmm. And I was on Eden Ravenscroft's website um, a few days ago, just wondering, sort of, hmm, I, you know, I wonder how much it will cost me to sort of, you know, get my get my new things. Certainly, I can look at buying the first hood, and then maybe the gown at some point, and then when I finish my LPC and masters, get that one too. And I put all three of them into my my basket and had a look. And um, hang on, let me guess. Yeah, anyway, uh, like six hundred pounds? Not quite six hundred, thankfully. Um, I am buying the the. You can either buy the gown as as, as polyester for one hundred and thirty, or um, cotton and wool, so like much nicer, mm. much thicker, just a bit more plush. Um, for I think one hundred and eighty, and then I think each hood is about. 80 or 90 pounds a pop. So oh, it's going okay. to come to something like with 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 shipping and VAT, it's going to be about 300 quid. Because I remember when I was, it, there was a time when I was going to do my PhD at Oxford. And if I'd stayed there, I would have had use for buying my undergrad, well, the, you know, the hood and gown. Mm-hmm. Because you'd wear it relatively frequently and, you know, you, you hire it for graduation. But if I wanted to buy it, I think it was about 300 pounds. Mm. Which is... Crazy. It's just, it's just ridiculous. I, I was just saying, yeah, because you've got a lot of letters. I think you've got more letters than me now, because I'm Simon Clark, M. Phys Oxon, PhD. I don't think PhD Exxon as well. PhD, oh, yes, I suppose you can. I mean, does, at what point does the university get its own letters? Because I know Oxon and Cantab definitely do. I think it's at, I think it's at the point of Royal Charter. Oh, really. Mm. Or they just use them anyway because it's a it's a weird sort of backward academic thing. It's a I mean, flex. it's a, it's, a, it's only of real use um, for Oxford and Cambridge because there's this there's the sort of the silly masters you get, which isn't an academic qualification. It's just a thing they give you, provided that you haven't. Yeah, you know, I did an extra year of work. Or you still accept God or something. I did an extra year of work, and I apparently had the same qualification as a bunch of people who just did three. Un- it's not fair. It's outrageous. I deserve the rank of master. <laughs> That actually really worked as a joke. I was making that up as I went, and that really worked. Um, so, I mean, not to drag this initial section of the, the podcast out too much, but um, obviously a couple of things have been happening with me as well. This is the first episode we've recorded since um, I wrote a book and it's come out. Of course. Yeah. which Huge excitement. Which has been a really strange process because... Um, it, it's 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 weird because I in my head I thought that actually the release date wouldn't be that unusual because it's it you know there's a long build up of lots of meetings with publishing people and you know getting getting stuff ready or doing interviews or whatever and then I figured that over the course of a couple of months there'd be like it'd be like a gradual wave mm-hmm which I think is still true I think there is still a general momentum over the whole area but on the day itself it was a 
whirlwind. Like, I don't think I got anything useful done because I was, it was like every five minutes, there'd be something in my inbox or something on socials um, that would need to be replied to. And obviously, you know, as a publisher, the publisher encourages you to, you know, post on Instagram, post on Twitter, engage with people. And it, it was just, it was absolutely wild. The, the day itself mm -hmm. and now in the aftermath that we're still getting you know every now and again a review will come out and so it's promoting that um but um i am very pleased to say that the books had some fantastic reviews um uh, the sunday times did a feature on it the financial times gave it a review which both of which were very positive the irish independent mm. just did a review the other day um like all the all of the reviews have been really really positive and apparently the sales have been very good for a first-time non-fiction author so I'm just looking you up on Goodreads now. Oh god! Oh no! I haven't. I haven't looked. I don't think I want to know. Actually, it's good. It's positive. It's very positive. Okay. You've got a review of. You've got a review of four point nine out of five. Out of how many? With how many ratings? Twenty ratings, seven reviews. Wow. Oh no! I don't, don't tell me anymore that I literally don't want to know. Like, yeah. It's so strange because you know it was the same as YouTube videos, I suppose. Like, you don't read the comments past a certain point because. I, you know, I will get the opinion of people who I respect and value their opinions. You know, people who've written books before. I would love to get an in-depth analysis from them. Mm -hmm. But I feel like looking at public reviews and constantly chasing that approval is just the way to madness. So yeah, absolutely. I, I'm just trying to be a little bit removed from it. But yeah, it, it's been, it has been really positive. And, and actually, I am very pleased that people have specifically been enjoying the audiobook. Um because a few people, including our friend Isabel from now, we should probably mention, um, the, the Swedish offshoot of the Wikicast is official um, in that they are making regular episodes. So Isabel, oh, Eric yes, and Greta, yeah, uh, uh, if you happen to speak Swedish... Sorry, I keep looking at the camera above my um, above my computer as if we're live streaming because I'm in such a habit now. You're um, a consummate professional. Sorry, I just always, uh, which camera? That one with the light on. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so, so if, you, if you do happen to speak Swedish, you can check them out. We'll leave them uh, a link in the description. Uh, I, they have assured me that the quality is about the same as the regular Wikicast. So... <laughs> To take that as you will um mm -hmm. but um yeah so, so so isabel posted uh she actually listened to the whole book on the first day strong um and and really enjoyed it and people on when i did a reading on twitch uh, seemed to enjoy it and yeah like as an experience it was very intense doing the audiobook so it's nice to hear that people have you know in, in, enjoyed listening to it and it's something that's mm. made me think that actually you know maybe i'm kind of okay at doing this it's definitely pierced through the imposter syndrome uh a little bit definitely not saying it's fully gone but um yeah let's just just generally you know it's been quite a lot of big ac big action happening behind there's some behind mm. the scenes and some in front of the camera because there's the book but also i've now been working with uh my editor for two videos now which is going really well like every single time i pass over a bunch of footage with some notes and here's an annotated script or in one case i just sent over a live stream and i was like what what can you make from this what can you what can you make as like a cut down video mm -hmm. and he absolutely smashed it out of the park it was every single time it has i've been told this by other youtubers that when you get an editor like full time mm -hmm. that's the point at which there's 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 just a step up because you can the yeah. quality just goes up so much and you can do so much more um so i'm really really excited about sort of the way things are going at the moment uh, and then also pixel girl and i are in the process of trying to buy a house which is infuriating <laughs> and takes up a lot of time um just to just to give you one brief story from the front line dan this is wild so um we went to look at a house 
uh, a new build. So it actually hadn't been built yet, but we there was a plot, and they said this is what's going to go on this 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 plot, and it's going to go for a certain amount of money, um, and it was towards the upper end of our budget anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And so we, we we called up to you know get a, a meeting with the development office so they could talk us through it, and if we were interested, we could possibly reserve it. Um, mm-hmm. And they said, right, we can't fit you in for a week. Come in. We'll, we'll come in and see you on Wednesday or whenever it was, um, right. which we did. We went over. but And in that week, they um, they said, right, so that property is actually now gone. But the next door property, um, which is exactly the same, it's literally just the next one down the street for the three-bedroom house, um, is now for sale. But it's actually £8,000 more. So it's the same house on the same street a week later, mm. and it's eight grand more. Which we, I mean, Pixel Girl nearly rage quit and just walk, nearly walked out. Like it was, mm. it was, it, it was just so absurd. Uh, and the market, yeah. the market at the moment is just ridiculous. Like, especially mm-hmm. considering that it's quite likely there's going to be a housing crash sometime in the near future. But like, you don't know when that's going to be. And if it does happen, you just stay in your, stay where you've bought for a couple more years. Like, it's not a fatal mistake, I don't think, to buy now. You're still getting on the ladder. But it's a terrible, terrible time to try and do it. My word. Um, fingers crossed by the time we next do an episode in like two weeks, there'll be some positive news. But I wouldn't wouldn't hold your breath because um, it's for two weeks. You'd probably pass out. Well, fingers crossed, I think, is, it, is, the, is, the, is the right way to go about it. Yeah. Like, you know, I only, we only have so much control over what's going on. We've just got to try and mm. ride the wave, as my dad would say. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so that's actually a, we, we you know what Dan we did a great job so far this episode. We actually talked mm. about the wiki the, the Wikipedia article. We fill people in on our lives, which is obviously what people come here to do. They just come here to hear about what we've been up to in our banal little lives. Um, but what I would like to know is, can we keep the quality going in Dan's choral piece of the week? Oh, we absolutely can. <laughs> And this will be my piece of the week. Drum roll, please. Go on then, hit me with it. Quite an exciting one, um, because I've heard about this piece for a long time, but I've never performed it, because it is fiendishly difficult. Um, And the University of Exeter Chapel Choir, with whom I'm singing on the the sort of, on an occasional basis, uh, her, Michael uh, has decided to put down this term, the Poulonc Mass in G. I've heard some rumblings about this. The Messe en Sol Majeur, um, and it is completely bonkers, as as you would expect with Poulonc. Um, it's it's just amazing. Um, it's very clever and very silly. And just yeah, as I say, exactly what you expect. There's a sort of there's a there's a reputation that Poulenc has amongst um, choral musicians, or I imagine probably musicians musicians in general, but particularly choral because it's very very difficult music to sing. Hmm. Um, it it's a sort of unspoken rule that you should never really attempt just to try and sight read Poulenc, having never heard or looked at the piece before, because it it is just mad. It's one different thing after another. I mean, for people who maybe not know, because he's a relatively unknown composer, I think outside of sort of our field possibly mm-hmm. i mean could you just fill in like you know he, he was like early 20th century right so like 20s and 30s yeah so certainly from i'm trying to remember 
where he was. Hang on, let me find his Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, welcome to the, oh, the oh, France yeah. Wikicast. Yeah, the Wikipedia. Um, <clears throat> he was a French composer and pianist. Uh, his con- compositions include songs, solo piano works, chamber music, choral pieces, operas, ballets, and orchestral concert music. I want to try, there should be a bit here on style. Oh, sorry, I've, I've got this up at the moment as well. This is interesting. Poulenc made the acquaintance of Eric Satie, under whose tutelage he became one of a group of young composers called, uh, called Les Six, or The Six. I think he's the most famous one of them. You've got Auric, Dury, Honegger, Milhaud, Poulenc, and... Taifair? I cannot pronounce that. Mm. And I was wondering if um if it was sort of going to include people like Ravel or Debussy. Oh, no. The music is often seen as a neoclassic reaction against the musical style of Wagner and the impressionist music of Debussy and Ravel. Yeah. <laughs> the opposite. So there's a description here. Poulenc's music is essentially diatonic. In Henry Hall's view, this is because the main feature of Poulenc's musical art is his melodic gift. The composer, Lennox Barclay, wrote of him, All through his life he was content to use conventional harmony, but his use of it was so individual, so immediately recognisable as its own, that it gave his music freshness and validity. Yeah, and I think absolutely the, the, the writing is incredibly melodic, but so singers will often sort of talk about voice leading. Um, and one of the things that makes Poulenc's music so mental is, I think I'm right in saying that he composed an awful lot of his stuff just sitting at the piano. Oh, wow. So a chord will a chord will work and will make sense in his mind, but for a singer, you know, singing, moving from, transitioning from one chord to another to another may not have a great deal of sort of, it might not make a lot of sense. Yeah, the line might you not can't, be there. Yeah. yeah, you can't anticipate the, you know, like where you should be moving because the because it's so colourful. Because I, I remember our friend Dr. Jones, who, who is himself a phenomenal composer, um, saying that, you know, basically all composers now will just, that they will write down the chords. You know, they know what they want to do. Whereas I'm not sure if that's the same as sitting down the piano. Because when you said sitting down the piano, I assume that meant that he would be trying to find the melody connecting those chords mm. so I, I i i don't know this is you know this is the technical side especially composing side of music that i know so little about mm. i think it was i think i think it was messian as well he did a lot of sort of sitting down and hammering stuff out mm. as far as his sort of compositional approach is concerned but yeah it's amazing this 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 mass and g is just fantastic um and if you haven't listened to it I really, really, really recommend it. It's it's so much fun, and I'm really looking forward to being able to add it to my sort of ever expanding list of just sort of knowledge of the repertoire because hmm. um, it's just very useful, especially for a piece like this. Like if you know if you're ever going and singing elsewhere or depping for something, and it suddenly turns up, and somebody sort of you know director of music might look at you in a slightly stressed way and go, you, "Do you know it?" And you go, "Yeah, yeah, that's you know, it's fine." <laughs> you know, same. And I'm going to listen to this to try and expand my horizons. Um, mm-hmm. It's interesting. At the at the end of the little abstract, at the start of the article, it says that he was um it, for the longest time he Poulenc had a reputation as being a humorous, lightweight composer, mm. which I just cannot imagine. Having heard, mm. I mean, the stuff I've put is like um, his Christmas music. Like, yeah, I I just don't know how you could draw that conclusion. Crazy. Well, it's marvelous. I actually have some more music for you, Dan, which I want to talk about in Critics Corner. Ooh. All right, all right, all right. So the music that I have to talk about initially is um, 
Uh, well, I mean, it's going to be very familiar to one person listening to this podcast because it was sent by them. Um, I'd like to talk briefly about some stuff that Fergus, our wonderful current editor, um, has put together and sent me in an email, and I will forward on to you. Um, now, basically, there's two recordings that um, he sent over of... Um, that was it, yes. With Ferg- so Fergus McCready and Matt Carmichael. This is Fergus, the editor. To clarify, the Fergus that Simon mentions is not me, but a different Fergus. Um, I will leave links to these in the show notes. They are these sort of six to eight minute long jazz pieces that are just mm-hmm. really, really good. I, I listened to a little bit of jazz, but not that much. But as soon as I heard this, I was like, I don't know much about jazz, but I know what I like, and I really like mm-hmm. this. Um so uh not not very much to sort of add to that i what i will do is put the links in the show notes and i will um send you the links dan sure um i think you'd really like it it's very kind of oh gosh i'm running out of words to try and describe music really it's it's very energetic Mm, i wasn't no soulful is the wrong word basically it's 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 something that has substance to it is energetic but it also kind of when I say energetic, it quite frequently makes it sound like it's like Flight of the Bumblebee or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, there, there's this has mass behind it. Mm-hmm. Can't describe it any better than that. But that's that's something okay. that I think people should listen to because I think it's really good. Yeah, yeah. Have you discovered anything recently that you'd like to critique? I don't think so. I had to start planning a new concert with the Chagford Singers mm-hmm. choir I conduct out in deepest darkest Dartmoor, um, and we've got I think quite a quite an exciting program for our may concert we're mm. kicking off the first half with the vivaldi gloria right. um the whole which thing is marvelous the whole thing wow yeah it's about yeah about depending on the sort of, of the timers and things i imagine ours is going to run to probably about 36 38 minutes right. um and then uh actually one second i was given an email the other day that contains the ticker tape's coming through. <laughs> yes, here we go. And then, and then in the second half, I wanted it to be sort of quite a light-hearted concert that sort of moved through various different styles to give everybody a sort of a flavour um, of of sort of fairly light-hearted music for a um, a May afternoon, May you know summer evening. Um, so we, I think, we're spanning sort of mid late 15th century to 21st century which is always nice to have a spread that sort of wide yeah so we've got gibbons the silver swan nice um then we move into two madrigals fair phyllis i saw sitting all alone and now is the month of may um good choices bruckner locusis day and then possibly um ave maria but i think that might be slightly too greater divisi parts some franc um panis angelicus but the SATB arrangement of it. Um, and then some Gielo, uh, with oh. his, um, uh. the ground, um, which is the Sanctus setting, I think, of um, his Sunrise Mass. I was listening to the uh, the Kyrie from that just yesterday. Mm. Lovely piece. And then uh, some Rutter, and finally Lauridsen, Shaw on This Shining Night, which is from his Nocturnes set, which is really nice. Is it? Is it? Because there's two kinds of rutter, isn't there? There's. Mm-hmm. It, it, it could be one of two things, basically. <laughs> We're either going to be doing for the beauty of the earth because it's a crowd pleaser and they'll love it, um, 
or Gaelic blessing, garlic dressing. The garlic dressing, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think it's either going to be one or the other, to be honest. I don't, don't know whether I can really hack doing both of them. Um, I'm at the moment leaning more towards for the beauty of the earth because um, there's quite a lot of stuff to learn before May, obviously, and then including uh, the Vivaldi Gloria, which and I need to source some soloists for that. I need a, I need a alto and two sopranos or countertenor and two sopranos. Right. So it's busy, busy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I had one other thing which I'd like to mention in this section and then in what well, no. We'll get to that in just a second. Um, there's, there's a YouTube channel I'd like to recommend. Um, this may not be so much for you, but it's a channel that I found an absolutely... You know when you find something new and you just, like... You watch one video and you're like, right, put my swimming cap on and my goggles, I'm going in. And you, yeah, you yeah. watch, like, 80 videos. Um, it's a guy called Arbiter Ian um, who does videos about uh, Games Workshop and Wargaming. It's not specifically 40k. A lot of it is. Um, but it's just one of these these channels that I found, and there's something about the way that he makes his content, something about his his rhythm of speaking, um, the way that he makes it, that I just completely fell in love with. So, you know, he's done videos on the timeline of 40k from the present day right the way up to sort of the, the latest developments in the in the setting, but also things like what happened to squats, which was dwarves in space, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of the history of a particular model line. Um, and he's also done a tale of four gamers. Uh, yeah. Just great. If you if you if any of that sounds interesting to you, I'll leave a link to his channel in the show notes as well. Um, I mm. fully went down the rabbit hole uh, in a way that I haven't done for a YouTube channel for quite some time. Actually, I can't remember the last time I really found a channel and did this. Um, oh, James Gurney. That was the other thing. There was there's a there's an artist called James Gurney who. If, if you ever read or watched Dinotopia, I don't think so. It was this sort of. It was a book that then was turned into a TV series about, you know, this undiscovered island about 100 miles long in the Pacific where dinosaurs survived and they coexist with humans. But um, it was written by this guy who was a concept artist um, and fantasy illustrator um, who just is this phenomenal painter. And he has a YouTube channel where he does sort of examples of painting and talks about particular techniques, which is something mm. that on flat surfaces, I obviously paint models, um, but... Uh, you know, I, I would love to actually do some oil painting or gauche or gauche. I'm not entirely sure how you supposed to pronounce it, like he does. Um, but yeah, tell you what, I'll leave a link to that wine as well. Why not? A link bonanza today, um, dear readers. Bonanzas. Well, Dan, that that is almost the last thing that I want to talk about because I have another thing that I would like to introduce you to in the next mm. section. So, Dan, I have discovered a game that I think is perfect for this podcast. It's called Wiki Trivia. Right. And uh, I want to be very clear before we start. This isn't sponsored or anything. The, the creator has not been in touch with us. We, they don't know that we are making this. But I'm pretty sure um, this is a, it's a simple browser game that's made by a single man called Tom J. Watson. Right. And um, all that it is is you're presented with cards, one after the other, that are wikipedia articles um and all you have to do is put them in chronological order i see so initially this is quite easy and then it gets really quite hard and i thought that we could try and play i'd like to play a game um on on the podcast so this it's almost like he wants to be a millionaire because like 
it's very easy to begin with, and then it definitely gets harder and harder. So right. to begin with, our first two cards are Stoicism, which uh, was created in 300 BC. And do we think that the American hip-hop group D12 was created before or after Stoicism? I'm going to say... I'm going to say after. That's correct. You got £100. Amazing. Great. Um, okay. The next card is Bicycle. When was the bicycle discovered? So D12 were founded in 1996, Stoicism in 300 BC. Uh, bicycle would, would have been before the American group, but after Stoicism. Yeah. So in the middle of the two. Yeah. £200. Okay. We can speed through some of these. Um, Amy Sedaris, the American comedian who is... Current, alive, and photographed in colour. When was she born? So she's our new most recent. So after the group, were we saying? I mean, the group is uh, was was founded in 1996. And in this photo, she looks oh. about 30 or 40. Fine. Okay, so before the American group. I'd Just say before. so. 1961. Yeah. Okay, now things get a bit more difficult. Um, right. M- Mongolian script. Vertically written traditional Mongolian script. When was this created? So for reference, we currently have Stoicism at 300 BC and Bicycle at 1885. Okay, so it'll be after Stoicism. I think so. Sometimes, and I should point out, you have three lives. Once you burn through those three lives and get things wrong, then game's over. What, when, 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 Stoicism was when, sorry? 300 BC. Yeah, okay, no, definitely. definitely I'd say Stoicism. so, but sometimes you get surprises. So Mongolian script was uh, invented in 1204. Right. Um, we're now into like the... Sixteen thousand pound kind of question okay. range, I think. No, but like, no, we're into the thousand pound, like that kind of range. Right, sure, sure. Um, okay, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. Can you remind me of the other dates that we've got? Uh, the most recent one we have so far is D twelve being founded in nineteen ninety six. Right. So this is the this is definitely the most the the rec- relatively recent the tsunami hitting Fukushima in Japan. Yeah. So that's going to be our new most recent. I definitely say so. I think it was like twenty. Oh, it's twenty eleven. Okay. Right. Right. Oh, one that might be up your alley. Um, the Napoleonic Code, the the Civil Code. Um, do we think that this was before or after eighteen eighty five? It's before. It's really early, isn't it? It's something. It's like eight, is it eighteen o two or three? Let's find out. Eighteen o four. Very good. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> That's such a monkey. <laughs> like, <Ooh>. Oh. <laughs> Okay, now things get a bit trickier again. So, Raharaja the First, the Chola Emperor, and the pi- each of these articles has a picture associated with it. Um, this looks to be of a a, a wall painting um, of an individual that, who's rendered in red. Raharaja uh. the First. So, for reference, uh. we currently have Stoicism at three hundred BC, Mongolian script yeah. at twelve o four, and Napoleonic Code at eighteen o four. Mm. Kola or Chola, C H O L A, Emperor. I don't know when that dynasty. Uh, well, now was. that I've got the spelling, Simon, I know exactly where I'll be. <laughs> well, I thought it I know exactly where I'll be. Okay, wait, sorry, give me the dates once more. So we have Stoicism at 300 BC, Mongolian script at 1204, and Napoleonic Code at 1804. I think it's almost certainly before 1804. Yeah, I'm going to say it's before the 1204 one. What was that? Yeah, that was Mongolian script. I'm gonna. I agree with you. And... So before Mongolian script, but after Stoicism. And we are correct. Raharaj the first was born in nine four seven. Right. Okay. Now, the next one is the 
Bad Shahi Mosque, a mosque in Punjab made by Empire Azringawal. Right. So it's in Punjab. Uh, so that's North India. Pakistan. Oh, uh, oh, it's in Punjab, a region in India, I thought. Oh, I thought it was Pakistani. Oh, God. That's that's a pretty de- divisive place to get something wrong. Uh... Um, okay, it's... Uh, give me the dates once more. So we've got we've got super, we've got Stoicism super early. Then we've got that the emperor, emperor in nine four seven. And then we go to what? And then Mongolian script in 1804. Okay, so it's going to be between it's going to be between twelve and eighteen, isn't it? I th- I think so. Looking at the design, it could be later because it does. Like I have a picture. I mean, it, it looks like a relatively typical mosque that's old, but I don't know enough about Islamic architecture to tell you. I think it's more. got to be, it can't be, it can't be earlier than 12 and I can't think it, it's, I think 18 is too, too late. Okay. Locking it in. 1671. Okay. Okay. Uh, next up, Viceroy, sorry, the Governor General of India, the Viceroy of British India. When did this end? Now, I am pretty sure that the, that India uh, was in de- or declared independence in 1948. So I would imagine that that was when that happened. I mean, it sounds good to me. So that would be between 1885 and 1961. Okay. Oh, technically it ended in 1950. Okay. Oh, oh boy. This one's... Okay. The King of Saudi Arabia. When was this? When was the position of King of Saudi Arabia created? I mean, a vague guess? How, that's so vague. I yeah. mean, that's got to be just a stab in the dark, hasn't it? Okay. The King of Saudi Arabia. Uh, now, the thing is, I don't know how old as a country Saudi Arabia is. Yeah. Um, so it could be surprisingly modern. Is it going to be... Do you reckon it's going to be after that 18-whatever date? 1804. I don't know. I mean, it could... I think it's... I, I, my, I, my gut is similar to you, I think. Did it say when did it, when did it end? No, when, when was it created? Oh, right. Because I, th- I think that is going to be specifically when... Basically, when was Saudi Arabia a country? And I'm not sure when that was. I would guess 19th or 20th century, actually. I don't think, as a country, it's that old. No. We've lost all our Saudi viewers now. <laughs> um, I mean, we get three lives, so if we just bang it in somewhere, it's not the end of the world. Should we say, like, it, so we say, so like, early 20th century? So between the bicycle and the end of the Governor General of India. I think that's as good a guess as any. Yeah, let's put that in. Why not? Oh, we got it right! Oh, when was it then? 1932. Ah. So between the wars. Um, oh, okay. This was this is one that hopefully you should know. Uh, Jabberwocky. When was the Jabberwocky published by Lewis Carroll? Um, That's got to be late 19th century, right? Yeah, it must be. When was... So he was... It's going to be like 1880 or 1870 or something like that. Where would that fit in our timeline? The three dates that we have that are relevant are 1804, 1885, and 1932. So do you think it's after or before 1885? It's gonna, I think it's going to be, in my mind, it's very close to 85, but it's definitely going to be before. It's ne- definitely not later than that. Okay, bank. 1871. Right, okay. Right, <laughs> okay. Close. okay, I think we are, are going to be taking a stab in the dark with this one, Daniel. Right. Because the next one is Kuing Aman, K-O-U-I-G-N, a-M-A-N-N. It's a cake from Brittany. When was this discovered? <laughs> um, I mean, it looks like a pancake. Like, it looks like a flat cake. So it could be quite old or it could be quite recent. I, I, it's a stab in the dark. Well, the weird thing about, like, pastries like that is that they can be, like, comically old. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, like, they can, they can be really old. 
I mean, okay, rough time period. Do we think medieval? Let's put it after 16, whatever it was. We had that date, didn't we? Yeah, so I think it would be between 1204, 1671 or 1804. So after 1671? It's either after 1671 or after 1804. What do you think? After 1804, the next one we have is 1871. So So that's a big chunk of time there. Yeah. (sighs) Do you think... If I had to lean towards one for no reason other than thinking I have to lean somewhere, I'd go (laughs) after 1804. Okay, bank. I'm going to put it in. We got it right. Oh, my God. Whoa. 1860. They're right. Uh, okay, next up is... We're doing very well, by the way. Like, my high score is 22, and I'm not sure how many we're on at the moment. Someone's been keeping score, I'm sure. They have 12. Um, right, next up. When was Little Women published by Louisa May Alcott? That's got to be 19th century again, but I'm not sure when. Yeah. Um. Like, late 19th century, after 1885? No, I don't. I'm trying to think of the movie that that came out recently, and the, yeah. like the the fashion in that, like they're in Paris, and it looks like it's. I want to say it's somewhere around. It's going to be like late 1850s, 1860s. I don't think it's late as 85. Right. So the the dates that we have then are 1804, 1860, 1871, and 1885. After 1860. Okay, I trust you on this one. You're the literary type here. We got oh, snuck it in again. When was it? Uh, it was published in 1868. All right. We got our three lifelines intact. Um, this okay. one, I think we we are probably going to get right. When did Barabbas, biblical person, die? Oh, God. I'm pretty sure this was between 300 BC and 947 AD, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to slot that one in. 100 AD, apparently. Wait, Barabbas Maybe. died in 100? Wait, hang on. The, the criminal that they called for at... The crucifixion of Jesus, which took place in about 30 AD, let's say. Mm. He then lived for another 70 years. That doesn't make any sense. Also, I had one the other day that was Simeon, as in the famous for his song. Mm-hmm. And it claimed that he died in 1 BC. Whereas surely that's the year before Christ was born. Or was, oh, ah, is this one of these things that Christ was born in 1 BC, technically? Because there's no 0 AD. Hmm. Yeah, it probably is. Okay, that would might that might explain it. Because obviously, you know, he saw baby Jesus and was like, great, I can pop my clogs. Right, okay, another actually quite easy one. Battle of Kursk, World War II battle. We have dates between 1932 and 1950. So I'm pretty okay, sure fine. that this was yeah. 44. 43, okay. Oh, okay. Um, IBM. When was IBM created? As in the... The software the company. company. I think it was after 1950, but before 1961... I think it's older. I think it's. I think it's one of these one that's been around for a, for, for quite a while. I mean, what? And, and they just made stuff before digital computers. You know, they made like calculators or something. Because yeah, because I mean, what does IBM stand for? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? It's got nothing to do with tech, hasn't it? It's isn't it just like B is for business. I think M stands for machine. I want to say it was a company created for computers. Oh, I don't know. It's it's got to be. I reckon it's sometime in the mid twentieth century. It's got. It's a question of whether we think it's before or after nineteen fifty. I think it's definitely before nineteen fifty. Okay. Do you think it's before World War Two? Oh, see, I don't know. This is where it gets hard. <laughs> I mean, I think we've we've got to bang it in somewhere. I'm trying to think whether they've there's been anything in the news about them celebrating a like an anniversary, centenary, or something. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it is earlier. Okay. Which I appreciate isn't helpful. Should we put it between 1932 and 
Sure, why not? I, for the record, I want the record to state, show that I think this is wrong, but we've got to move on. Yeah, I think it's wrong as well. Oh my god, 1911. See, like, how would you know? That's so... So hang on, I'm just going to click on the article here. Yeah. Uh, IBM stands for International Business Machines Corporation. Um, right. It was originally founded in 1911. Um, and... Oh, wow, the history is really long. Um, oh, it made things like uh, paper, like time clocks, like paper, you know, clocking in and out type things. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. So that's our first lifeline gone. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, the Frankfurt Stock Exchange. <laughs> when did we think this was created? <laughs> right. Um... I can see, I can, there's a picture of the building, and, I mean, it looks like it could have... It could have been built any time between 1850 and 2000, looking at it. Like, it's quite nondescript. I think it's going to be late 1800s. So after 1885? Because the big thing was stock exchanges. Yeah, let's say let's say after. Like, the Dutch did it in, like, the 1700s, right? That was, like, the first stock exchange. Was it? But then this building doesn't look that... But then again, of course, it could just be a new building. Um... Okay, I'm going to bang it in, because otherwise this podcast is going to be really, really long. Let us know, by the way, in emails if you'd like us to do this again, because I think this could be a regular section. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say between 1885 and 1911. Happy? I think. I mean, God knows, mate. Wow! How wrong were we? 1585. Whoa! Right? That's nuts. It's insane. 1585? Yeah. I would never have guessed that early. No. It must be a new building. So that was the only bit of information I had. Wow. Crazy. Okay, one that I think we should be able to get. Siege of Vicksburg, Battle of the American Civil War. So that was 1840s, 50s? I think that around then, wasn't it? So we have 1804 and 1860 is like two dates. So I'm pretty sure it's between those two. We've got 18 what and... 1804 and 1860. That doesn't give us much headroom though, does it? Well, it's 54 years, 56 years. After eight, No, I mean like headroom after 1860. Because I can't, I can't remember specifically when the American Civil War was. I think it was 1840s. I'm pretty sure it's like then. I don't think it's as late as 1860. What have we got above? What's our higher limit on 18... And we got 1860, 1868, 1871. Oh, We've got quite a few. I'm bunging it in. Okay. Bank. No! 1863. So we got 15 right. Which is pretty good. That's not pretty bad. good go. Yeah. It's not bad. Um, holy crap. Well, um, did you enjoy that? I did. That's good. I'm going to play this. Yeah, I'll send you the link and I'll put the link in the show notes as well. Yet another link to the link bonanza. But um, if you'd let us know in emails if you'd like us to do that again, because uh, I, I'm kind of addicted to this game. <laughs> Top lad. Right, and we find ourselves in Patreon Corner. Very briefly, this is the part of the show that pays for the show. Um, Patreon.com forward slash the Wikicast is where you can pledge your support for a dollar a month or five dollars a month if you're particularly generous. Um, and you get to choose whether you are team cat or team dog. Uh, and uh, it's actually pretty, it's more even than it used to be, isn't it? Um, like it was kind of a, a, a walkover before. I have 23 top cats to thank. How many top dogs do you have? 18. Okay, so it is actually pretty tight. So if you want to pledge your allegiance to cats or dogs, then uh, you can do. And basically, it pays for the hosting of the show. It pays um, for our wonderful editor and musician, Fergus. Um, mm. And means that... <laughs> 
once once the pandemic's calmed down a bit and our lives have calmed down a bit, we can finally do a bunch of filming together and it'll pay for all of the alcohol that we need to make it through Absolutely. that session. We're going to be like Red Letter Media and just be steaming drunk <laughs> in everything we half make. In, half in the bag. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about movies. Um, right, we, do you have some people you'd like to thank, Dan? I do, I really do. I'd like to say a massive thank you to the top dogs and they are as follows. We have Christian from the Alps, oh. Amy Bonney, uh, Martin Narciso, Sam Harvey, Ben Caples, Josh Chiaga, Henry VII, King of England and of France, Lord of Ireland, Andrian with an N, Chan, Naf Laroch, Hasse Hansen, Aaron Jorgensen, Lexi at Front Desk, Eve Sharples, Alistair Fortune, Peter Reed, Colin J. Brown, Ben McMurtry and Jay Wright. Thank you so much. Well, I would like to thank some people as well. I'd like to thank the people who pledge at the top cat level, and I'm going to sort by something different. What am I going to sort by? I'm going to sort by uh, lifetime pledge. So I'd like to say a very special thank you to Oliver Craigie, Dan Hanvey, Matt McGuire, Isabella Strowski, Chococat, Colm Mansfield, Princess Andromeda, Oliver Burkhart, Layla Medina, Omar Miranda, Rents Kirk, Will Jenis Humphreys, Lewis Watson, Bendant, Nafi Iftikar, Izzy CC, Jack Easton, Simon P, Abu El Ella, the Physics Boy, Dame Valerie the Third, Easy, Nathan Flaherty, and Andy Hartley. Thank you, one and all. You make the show possible. It's all your fault. Top lad. Right. Sorry. I'm just uh, in the middle of that. I was trying to clear through our emails because it's a f-ing mess. What a treat. It is really astonishingly bad. Are you interested in buying any pure CBD gummies? <laughs> uh, I'm actually uh, all, all right, you know. Uh, yeah. And it's that time again where we find ourselves in Correspondence Corner. And we have an email here um, from regular reader of the podcast and one-time special guest. Always special guest. Always special, just the, the guest the one time. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and Isabel says, oh, gosh, <laughs> I can't remember how this goes. I think that's Cinare or something. Yeah. Cinare? I made it sound Italian. Cinare. Yeah. I'm going to go with Cinare. Cinare. <laughs> Did you think you had heard the last of us? Well, fear not, because we are immortalising our non-content on the internet as well, but in Swedish. Basically, Eric, Greta and I thought it was very funny if we started an actual Swedish version of the Wikicast. Mostly just to share with our friends, but we noticed the easiest way to share it with our friends and stuff was just to upload it to Spotify, and we wanted to check in and make sure that's okay. Obviously, we aren't monetizing at all just for fun. I mean, more than okay. You don't... More than you, okay. You know, go for it. Do it. Um, we have made a first episode already, so let us know if you want to um, want to hear us talk about Swedish public employment service in a language you do not understand. <laughs> Hope the start of your new year is treating you well, Isabel. The thing is, I've been told, and I think it was Mark Humes who told me this, that like the, the, some of the best music you can listen to when you're trying to work is stuff like K-pop and J-pop. Because mm-hmm. if you don't understand the language, you just tune it out. It's just like pleasant background noise. Yeah. And I imagine that actually just having a conversation between friends in a language that I don't understand in the background would be quite nice atmosphere. It's almost like being in a coffee shop in Stockholm. <laughs> so yeah. I could see there being value to this, even if you don't understand Swedish. <laughs> but but if you do, then there is now a localised version of the Wikicast. Um, which will, let's be real, probably be better than the original. Amazing. Well, I'm definitely going to be listening to that. 
So that's actually um, all the time we have for emails this week. Um, we would love, we genuinely like our favorite part of the show is hearing from you. Mm. So if you've if you've never emailed in before, please do. You know, get in touch. Let us know what you think of the new section, and just you know, we we used to put out calls for things like you know um confession corner or crises or whatever we what what should people email in about dan well i think given that we're trialing this new corner it would be great to hear the scores oh no i mean something totally irrelevant oh sure something just i want to hear about a random thing you know like a random story or something that's happened to you like give them a topic dan that they can email in about most exciting thing that's happened since the start of the new year Ooh. So 2022, what has been the most exciting thing? You know, it, it, it might have been a fairly slow start for the year, in which case the, the exciting thing might be a little bit sort of trivial. It doesn't matter. We want to know. Yeah, we're the Wikicast. We love trivial. It's what our whole show's about. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's our shtick. So, yeah, I like that. Uh, if Email in with the most exciting thing that's happened to you since the start of the year, and we will go through the best ones and maybe some of the worst ones uh, next episode. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Dan, what have we learned today? Today, Simon, we learned about first contact in an anthropology or anthropomorphological context. <laughs> anthropomorphological. <laughs> Anthropo- anthropomorphological, right? Yeah, that's the one. Um, yes, which is often terrible, but can actually sometimes apparently be quite friendly and then turn terrible. We then had my choral piece of the week. Yes, I'm indeed. just trying to cast my mind back now. It seems so long ago. Well, it's been a bit of a bumper episode because as well as all the normal stuff, we played a new game. We played a new game. Which suited us down to the ground, I think. Absolutely. I think it's going it's, it's, it, it's to be right at home in this, uh, in this ridiculous thing we call the Wikicast podcast. It needs its own corner. It's going to be like Trivia Corner or something. Absolutely. Or, I don't know, play a game, game corner? No, it doesn't work. Send an email in with your thoughts on it, including possibly a new name for the corner. And we can put, we can, we can, we can use a sort of countdown-esque theme. Oh, yeah, if you want to do theme music for it. I'm, I mean, Fergus, I imagine, uh, hopefully will have put something together, but if you could do, like, full custom music for us, oh, I'd love that. That would be, yeah too exciting and that's all for this episode don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcasting service of choice join the discord and if you'd like to see our faces from a few years ago check out our youtube channel spongy and electric your top score on wiki trivia most exciting thing of 2022 and other thoughts on the show can be sent to us at spongyelectric at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you join us again for another tumble down the wiki rabbit hole and we'll see you next time, time.